I don't think it's a closely guarded secret that the reason that this case was brought was not because of competition for adult stem cell research. It was brought because the plaintiffs uh, have moral uh, opposition to this type of research. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, you have a couple of blogs. Uh, I do. I have my blog, Law Sites, and uh, another blog called Media Law. And uh, Bob, we'd, we'd also like to, thank... like to... Go ahead. Go ahead. You thank them. <laughs> <laughs> we can thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, Craig, uh, last month in Washington, D.C., uh, U.S. District Judge Royce C. Lamberth issued a preliminary injunction blocking Obama administration guidelines that would allow funding for research using embryonic stem cells. Uh, Judge Lamberth ruled that through the so-called Dickey-Wicker Amendment to the 1996 Balanced Budget Down Payment Act, Congress unambiguously directed that federal funds are not to be used for research in which an embryo is destroyed and that the Obama guidelines would violate that directive. And Bob, the recent ruling centers around a lawsuit filed against the National Institute of Health by two scientists who were opposed to embryonic stem cell research. They claim that by awarding federal funds for research on embryonic stem cells, it jeopardized and restricted funds for their work with adult stem cells. Since this recent ruling, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia has temporarily lifted the ban. Well, there is a significant debate over the use of uh, embryonic stem cells for research. Uh, supporters, of course, credit stem cell research overall with uh, giving hope to people with uh, spinal cord injuries, uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, and other debilitating diseases and injuries. Uh, but opponents uh, cite violations of ethical and religious issues and, and even question the, the scientific uh, need for embryonic stem cell research. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about uh, this recent ruling about the broader debate, the legislative, ethical, and, uh, and religious aspects uh, as they're implicated in stem cell research uh, and what this means for the future of research in this area. And to do so, we've got two great guests today. Our first guest is Russell Korobkin. He's a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, where he teaches contracts, negotiation, and healthcare law. And he's the author of Stem Cell Century, Law and Policy for a Breakthrough Technology. Professor Korobkin has also published more than 40 law journals in the fields of behavioral law and economics, the healthcare law, and stem cell research. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Korobkin. Thank you for having me. And joining us next today is uh, Charles P. Kindergan, Jr., professor of law at Suffolk University Law School in Boston. Uh, Charlie, as he goes, as he likes to be called, uh, has a specialty in family law and assisted reproductive reproduction law. Uh, Charles has authored a 
co-authored texts on family law and torts, including the American Bar Association book on assisted reproduction. He's also led the ABA committee uh, to draft the model rules in this area. We'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Charles Kindergan, Jr. Delighted to be here. Well, uh, this is uh, obviously a, a long-standing and, and ongoing uh, debate. Uh, I wonder if we could uh, perhaps start by by talking about the, the recent ruling and, and Russell Karabkin. I, I understand the the uh, Court of Appeals has issued a, at least a temporary stay of of, uh, of the district court's ruling here. But what's your what's your impression of of this uh, opinion? Uh, from the District of Columbia District Court? Well, it's certainly a surprising ruling for uh, the Dickey-Wicker Amendment, as as, uh, was pointed out, has been um, uh, reenacted every year since 1996. And the key uh, wording of the Dickey-Wicker Amendment that is put in each year's appropriation bill is that uh, the government, the federal government, may not use appropriated federal funds to support research in which human embryos are destroyed. Uh, And it's that research in which language that has been, this has been interpreted by the, not only the Clinton and the Obama administrations, but also the Bush administration uh, as um, prohibiting federal funding for the actual work in which embryonic stem cell lines are created and that's uh, done by taking the inner cell mass cells from three to five day old blastocysts, young embryos, uh, which destroys the embryo itself. Uh, but it's been interpreted by those administrations as not prohibiting federal funding of research that is done using the embryonic stem cell lines that are created as a, um, uh, through this process. These stem cells, once they're created, they live indefinitely in uh, uh, in solution, and they reproduce themselves over and over and over. So these stem cell lines are sort of ongoing existing lines of cells, and uh, once created, uh, they're used by scientists all over the world. So the, the interpretation of this congressional language was that federal money could be used not to create the stem cell lines, but once the stem cell lines are created, it's uh, not inappropriate to use federal funding or not uh, prohibited to use federal funding for all the scientists who then study how those cells work in the hopes of trying to understand disease better and ultimately to come up with treatments for some of the uh, um, uh, illnesses and injuries that you spoke of at the top of the show. Uh, Judge Lambert interpreted the Dickey-Wicker Amendment differently. He said that critical research in which language, he said, well, any research that uses embryonic stem cell lines or embryonic stem cells uh, is part of the same ongoing research uh, which started out with some of those uh, blastocysts being destroyed and therefore funding of the what a scientist might call the downstream research is prohibited if upstream there was an embryo destroyed in the process. And that's what's led to all of the controversy in the last month. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with Russell on that. It, it seems to me that this uh, debate is, is not just legal, but of course it's we're, what we're talking about here is uh, government money uh, to uh, promote and support research. And that alone makes it something of a political debate, not just a legal debate. It's also, of course, uh, an economic debate. The uh, 
the Shirley case was actually brought by uh, the scientists who were doing research in adult stem cell, and their concern, I guess, was that was an economic one in part that, that the government was going to be funding competitors, uh, and so uh, it, as with so many of these things, it's not easy to just say that. It's a legal debate. It happens to be right now in the courts, uh, in the, I assume it's on appeal in the uh, in D.C. Circuit. Uh, so uh, there are many aspects of this be, beyond just the purely legal question of the interpretation of a Dickie Wicker. But that, that clearly is the, the critical focus in the case. Uh, and I agree with Russell that it, it seems like a pretty broad interpretation of the Dickie Wicker Amendment. Let, let me just let me just uh, flesh out as something Charlie alluded to, just so the listeners understand. Since since we are talking mostly to lawyers here, the exact legal posture of what's going on. There are really two issues that are before the court right now. For those who are interested in the detail, um, the first is the underlying question about what's the appropriate statutory interpretation of the Dickey Wicker Amendment. Uh, but then there's a second issue, which is. Given Judge Lambert's interpretation of the Dickey Wicker Amendment, was it appropriate for him to grant a preliminary injunction against the federal government, thereby prohibiting the National Institutes of Health from uh, funding embryonic stem cell research until a fi- until Judge Lambert first enters a final judgment on the merits, which, by the way, he is not so far, and until the D.C. Circuit is able to hear an appeal on the underlying merits claim. So right now you have two things going on. Judge Lamberth issues a preliminary injunction. The Department of Justice has challenged that in the D.C. Circuit. That's before the D.C. Circuit right now. And the D.C. Circuit lifted the preliminary injunction temporarily so they, until they could consider whether a preliminary injunction was properly granted. Uh, the briefs have been filed in this, uh, in this rush appeal, and I expect the D.C. Circuit's going to probably rule on this quickly within the next uh, few weeks, if not uh, even sooner. Uh, when the D.C. Circuit rules on this question, they're not going to address the underlying merits of whether Judge Lambert's interpretation of Dickey Wicker is correct. They're going to address whether or not the uh, relative uh, uh, equities and, and harms uh, suggest that the federal government should be able to go along and do what it's been doing or the federal government should be prohibited from doing so until the merits of the case are decided. But one of the standards is the substantial is, is the likelihood of success on the merits, and, and, and that's right. to that extent, the, the court of appeals would have to uh, would have to at least touch on uh, his interpretation of the amendment, wouldn't wouldn't they? Well, that, that's right. That 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 the merits do get in there a little bit through the back door. But my guess is that the uh, you know if we're reading the uh, prognosticating here, or reading the tea leaves, my guess is that the uh, D.C. Circuit at this point is going to shy away from the merits, and they're going to focus. Uh, I, I think they're going to reverse Judge Lambert on the preliminary injunction, and they're going to say that uh, uh, that too much is at stake uh, and to uh, stop funding here until the merits are finally decided uh, with with a lot of attention to the detail of the statutory interpretation question. And I think they're going to point out, I think they're going to talk about especially the stem cell researchers who um, will be irreparably harmed. Their labs might, some of these people, uh, scientists' labs might have to shut down. Um, there's going to, whereas the um, plaintiffs in this case 
what's their level of harm if they have to wait until a final merits decision uh, comes down? Now, as you pointed out, uh, they're claiming, uh, the plaintiffs in this case are claiming that as researchers who do adult stem cell work, not embryonic work, they're disadvantaged in the process of applying for grants. But uh, uh, to me, and I, and I think the D.C. Circuit's going to agree, the relative balance of the harms of having to wait fall more heavily on the embryonic stem cell researchers and potential uh, and patients who might potentially benefit from, from that research. So I think the D.C. Circuit's going to overturn Judge Lamberth on on the preliminary injunction. But then there's also the issue that's still pending before Judge Lamberth on the merits, the underlying merits. And the plaintiffs have filed for summary judgment now on the merits. And everyone believes that Judge Lamberth is going to rule in their favor because in the preliminary injunction, he already said that he thinks that they're on the right side of the argument. But then that case will have to be appealed to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, That seems to me like to, to be a good educated guess as to what he might do. But I think we'll have to wait and see. It, that that would be pretty extreme to grant summary judgment in favor of the plaintiff in a case like this, I think. Well, there's no real factual uh, uh, question, issues at stake, though. It's, it's purely purely a legal question. And in Judge Lambert's preliminary injunction order, he in no way suggested that he didn't have full information on which to make the decision or that he was in any way uncertain about his uh, ruling. Um, so given that there are really there's no need for any uh, presentation of facts in a trial setting, um, I don't see much choice uh, at this point but for Judge Lamberth to grant that motion. And, and then, of course, it'll be appealed to the D.C. Circuit right, right away. What consideration is the judge going to be giving to the ethical and religious issues that are swirling around the stem cell research? Well, there certainly are religious issues. There are many people in our country who uh, who object to any type of research uh, on using embryos uh, as a, a means of scientific research. But it, we are a democracy, and uh, religion is separate from the civil sphere. We can't ignore it because it's there, and religious leaders often raise ethical issues for us that we should consider. Uh, but the idea uh, that religion ought to control this, I just can't see that that fits into our legal or social or political system. Yeah, there there are a couple of a couple of ways to look at this this question. I think um, the first is from Judge Lambert's perspective. The second is from the plaintiff's perspective. So, Judge Lambert said in his preliminary injunction, and and I of course, can't read his mind, but I take him at his word, that this is purely, uh, from, he, from his perspective, he's purely trying to interpret the statute as best he can. And while I disagree with his interpretation of the statute, I, I, I take him at his word on that, that no sort of religious or moral or ethical opinions of his are going into his ruling, yeah. at least not directly. One never knows what's in the, the subconscious of any of us. The plaintiffs are a different story. I don't think there's much question that the plaintiffs here, uh, this lawsuit was brought by a series of plaintiffs. Now, some of them were um, thrown out as lacking standing, uh, but uh, because their interest was in the protection of embryos. The plaintiffs that are currently still in the case, the plaintiffs whom the D.C. Circuit ruled do have standing, uh, are claiming to oppose the research sort of from a, technically from a 
legal doctrine perspective, because uh, under the uh, competition standing uh, doctrine. That is, they're saying that that they're disadvantaged by embryonic stem cell research professionally because it means less funds for the kind of research that they do, adult stem cell research. But I don't think it's a closely guarded secret that the reason that this case was brought was not because of competition for adult stem cell research. It was brought because the plaintiffs uh, have moral uh, opposition to this type of research, and they're using all the legal tools they can to uh, uh, to satisfy uh, their um, uh, their moral proclivities. There's nothing wrong with that in our system, uh, but I think that uh, it, it, it's quite clear that that's what's underlying the plaintiffs bringing this case. Well, I don't see how you can get around that. I mean, this this is the the, the judge, you know, makes a point of of talking about the fact that there are different kinds of stem cells and they have different applications in research. And in this case, only involves the embryonic stem cell research, as as did the amendment uh, that that's at the center of it. Uh, I mean, Charlie, how do you how do you you know get around the fact that this is a at at base a, a moral issue, even though it's cast in kind of legal terms here? Well, this. Is- part, of course, of a much, much bigger uh, issue in our country and indeed around the world, uh, which is the issue of how do we treat uh, human pre-embryos. It's certainly a major issue in my field, which is assisted reproductive technology, where in in vitro, which has become a very common method of uh, increasing fertility and, and having children, uh, there are, nobody knows how many, probably well over a half million, maybe a million in our country alone, uh, pre-embryos in cryopreservation. And these issues have come up again and again in very controversial legal cases uh, relating, for example, to who makes the decision to destroy an embryo, who makes a decision to uh, sell an embryo. Uh, who makes a decision uh, when the uh, people who created the embryo are getting divorced? Should it be by contract? Should it be by some kind of an of analysis based on reproductive rights? And right now, all over this country, there are courts reaching different kinds of decisions about this. And it, it's just part of a bigger picture that does exist, not just in regard to scientific research, but to many of these other legal issues that we see springing up all over the place. But certainly this case, I'm talking about the Shirley versus Sebelius case, uh, is an illustration of of what happens when you get these kinds of issues into a political forum uh, and then into a court system. Uh, and obviously, the answers are very complex in these matters, but uh, the um, the court has to resolve them. And I, I think it's going to ultimately turn out that, as in the many other instances in which legal issues involving embryos have arisen, that uh, the court is not going to be able to stop this. This is a, It's almost like trying to stop a hurricane. Uh, the issue has come up in so many contexts that to say that we're going to now, by means of a legal case, uh, provide a certain interpretation of a congressional enactment some 15 or 16 years ago uh, is is just not going to uh, produce the results that uh, I think Russ is referring to when he says the real reasons behind 
this case being brought. I just can't see it happening. Maybe I can jump in here for a second and and and, and talk a little bit about um, uh, the connection that Charlie raised uh, quite appropriately between embryonic stem cell research and uh, in vitro fertilization. One thing that many people are not aware of is that the Obama administration's policy on funding embryonic stem cell research takes actually a middle ground in the debate about whether to uh, whether or not it's appropriate to use embryos for scientific research. Specifically, the Obama administration's policy that's uh, laid down in an executive order says that the federal government can fund research that's conducted on embryonic stem cell lines only if those embryos that are used originally to create the stem cell lines are left over from in vitro fertilization and were originally created as part of the in vitro fertilization process. And also, in addition to having been created for in vitro fertilization, there also has to be a determination made that those are are excess embryos and they will never be used for in vitro fertilization and that they will be destroyed otherwise so that the scientific, so that from one perspective, using these embryos to create embryonic cell lines is not going to increase the number of embryos that are destroyed, that these are only, the only embryos that are going to be used in the uh, scientific process are embryos that were going to be destroyed anyway. And this sort of, you got to know a little bit more detail about in vitro fertilization. Usually what, what happens is, is that the, the clinic will uh, try to create as many uh, eggs as possible, stimulate the, the woman who comes in for in vitro fertilization to create as many eggs as possible, and they'll harvest um, as many eggs as possible using, um, uh, you, you know, using uh, fertility drugs. And usually that they'll get about, you know, between, say, uh, 10 to 12 to 15 eggs that they're able to harvest and successfully fertilize. But then they'll only use typically two for in vitro fertilization. So... Uh, then you have 6, 8, 10, 12 embryos that were created in the clinic but are left over. Two are picked out that are considered by the doctors to be the best, most likely to implant. And the rest are, are excess, and those ultimately get destroyed. Those are the embryos that are eventually turned into stem cell lines that are then eligible for federal funding under the Obama policy. So you really have sort of a a whole line of ethical questions that if what you're concerned about is that funding research on embryonic stem cell lines uh, is going to encourage the destruction of embryos, what you really ought to be concerned about is the way in vitro fertilization is practiced in this country, because that's what's really uh, leading to the creation of embryos that are then going to be destroyed one way or another under the Obama policy. Gentlemen, we need to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll talk more about this stem cell debate. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. 
Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Keep up with the fast pace of the legal profession. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all of our great legal podcasts. They're free. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Uh, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi and um, my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are joined by Russell Korobkin, professor of law at UCLA School of Law and author of Stem Cell Century Law and Policy for a Breakthrough Technology, and also by Charles P. Kindergan, Jr., a professor of family law at Suffolk University in Boston and co-author of the American Bar Association book on assisted reproduction. And uh, uh, just before we went to break, Charlie, I know you were starting to say something. I didn't want to cut you off. No so problem. Uh, do you want to continue on that thought? Yeah, it, it does strike me that the word uh, excess that Russell used uh, probably needs a little bit of clarification for people who are not intimately familiar with uh, reproductive medicine and the law governing it. Uh, these these uh, pre-embryos uh, are, are not produced uh, just arbitrarily. Uh, they're certainly not produced for the purpose of uh, being used in scientific research, but they are used uh, because of the fertility and practical problems that you have uh, when a woman is subjected to fertility drugs and so forth, that uh, it's wise and it's a medical decision uh, to produce these embryos so that the best can be implanted. Uh, and if they're not used immediately, uh, to have them cryopreservation for use in the future reproductive cycles. And the, the reality is that these uh, embryos are produced as part of a private, maybe related in some states to insurance, uh, but as a result of private medical decisions. These are not government decisions. And when the government gets involved, uh, as was just described in the Obama administration, uh, then uh, the issue becomes, well, if these embryos are really excess, and they are, then uh, how, uh, how do we use them? Uh, and we use them but first by individual choice. People can donate them. People can save them for their own future use. Uh, but from the government's point of view, the question is, can we fund their use in a scientific way? And that, it seems to me, is an entirely different issue. And I don't know of anybody who actively encourages, maybe there are a few people out there, but I don't know them, who would actually say, well, 
we ought to produce embryos so we can do this scientific research. The decision to have these embryos and have them cryopreserved is entirely private, not governmental. And I, I think that's sometimes overlooked in this debate. What is the alternative if we're not going to be doing embryonic stem cell research? Uh, how do medical researchers find the answers for diseases and injuries that could be remedied by this research? Well, clearly, uh, embryonic, research, embryonic stem cell research is not the only way to try to find cures and treatments for diseases. Right? Scientists, we've only had uh, uh, embryonic stem cells for about... Uh, about 12 years now. Scientists have been doing this kind of medical research for, for decades. But, uh, but scientists, but most of the scientific community, the large, large majority, think that embryonic stem cells are going to be a key to solving medical problems that we haven't been able to solve. Because embryonic stem cells, uh, they have uh, certain properties that are very useful for research and potentially for treatments. First is they can evolve into any kind of cell uh, in the body. And that means that if for treating diseases that where cells are, die or are destroyed, if we could one day create a, stable, uh, create a stable set of cells to be used as therapy, uh, that's a, a very likely way of curing a lot of diseases. Also, short of that, just being able to, in a test tube, create cells that cause diseases or other kinds of of functional problems uh, easily and in large quantities, even if they're never implanted into the body as treatments, can make it much easier to test chemical drugs um, than uh, it currently is. Uh, so research on pharmaceuticals is extremely expensive, extremely time-consuming. If we could create, for example, large numbers of cells that have all the characteristics of cells that cause Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, for example, uh, then we might be able to test hundreds or thousands of chemical compounds on those cells and really reduce the need for clinical trials that are so long and so expensive. So there's a lot of potential for these kind of, of cells. Now, as opponents of the research point out, fairly, so far, this research hasn't led to any treatment. True. But, of course, these cells have only been around for 12 years, and much of that time, funding sources have been hampered by the objections of the opponents of, of embryonic stem cell research. So, uh, although opponents often point out that no treatments have come from embryonic stem cells yet, and they also point out that adult stem cells which research that they favor because embryos are not destroyed to create the stem cell lines. Adult stem cell treatments have produced some successes. Uh, those points are both true, but embryonic stem cells have only been around for a short period of time, and there's been a lot of uh, controversy and, and funding limitations, whereas we've known about certain kinds of adult stem cells for decades, and there hasn't been the controversy or the funding limitations surrounding them. So I think that this is really a question that has to be uh, ultimately can only be resolved by science. We just have to do the research, let scientists proceed with the research, and see uh, whether uh, it ultimately leads to cures or treatments. There's, there's no other way to know other than to do the research. That's true. In 12 years, 15 years, very short periods of time in, in uh, science, it takes a lot of work and a lot of research to produce practical clinical results, I think. The, and then, you know, what's really, one thing that's really interesting for lawyers about this question is here, Charlie and I are just talking now about the underlying science and the possibility for cures. What 
lawyers might want to focus on this month, you know, coming up, are these three key words, research in which, right? That's what the legal argument at the current moment comes down to. Certainly, there has to be some uh, cabining of the concept of the research that the federal government funds. That is, if the federal government, if I apply for a grant from the National Institutes of Health to study um, a certain kind of cancer, let's say a, a bone cancer, um, what I'm asking for the money for to do in my lab, uh, that can't be considered part of, that can't, can't be considered related for any practical purposes to all research that's ever been done on bone cancer. There there's, has to be some limitation to the concept of what is the research that I'm doing. Um, and the question is, how is how close does the link have to be between my research project to some other research project in order for it to be considered the same project such that a congressional prohibition on funding for research uh, applies to what I'm doing? Um, that's, that's ultimately the issue, how broadly we're going to tie or how, di- how directly the tie has to be from the research in my lab that I'm asking for funding for to prior work that has been done. Uh, and um, the language, I think, in the, in the Dickey Wicker Amendment is, uh, you know, a little bit unclear about this. I think uh, Judge Lambert's interpretation is overly broad because it admits to no limitations. And ultimately, I think it's going to be overturned by the D.C. Circuit for that reason. But Congress hasn't uh, given the most clear statement of what it wants in the Dickey Wicker Amendment. And um, to a large, large extent, I think the current crisis that the stem cell research has been plunged into in the last month by Judge Lambert falls at the uh, uh, responsibility lies at the feet of Congress that has passed a somewhat unclear uh, piece of legislation every year for the last 15 years. Um, rather than making clear what Congress wants to fund. And, and of course, there's been some different views that were expressed during the legislative process itself. And the legislative history is not fully clear. Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's, quite, it, it's quite clear that when this amendment was first written, no one was thinking about stem cell research at all because there weren't any embryonic stem cells then. But con- inertia takes over in Congress, and this amendment is attached to the appropriations bill every year. Right, so it was just it was just passed again, uh, just a few months ago. Congress re- restates the same language like a, a mantra every year, even though it is, by the way, quite clear that Congress has, that a majority of Congress does not favor Judge Lambert's interpretation of the Dickey Wicker Amendment. How do I know that for sure? Because twice the Congress has passed something called the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act that very clearly states that the federal government may fund embryonic stem cell research. This bill well, there's, clear, there's clearly a lot more uh, clearly a lot more ambiguity here than than the decision uh, than oh, the decision oh, seems to have suggested. It, it, but unfortunately, we are running low on time. Regrettably, there's a, a lot more we could talk about here. But uh, before we conclude today's show, we would like to give each of you an opportunity to share your final thoughts on this topic. And and if you'd like to uh, also uh, let our listeners know how they might follow up with you and get more information about this from you, if they'd like to do that. So, uh, Professor uh, Russell Kropkin, let's start with you. Sure. So, a final word. So, let me uh, predict that um, before the D.C. Circuit ever gets around to finally uh, resolving this question on the merits, Congress is going to step in and 
pass again for the third time the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act that will make clear that the research we're talking about may be funded by the federal government and it will moot uh, the current legal dispute. If Congress doesn't do that, then the D.C. Circuit's going to eventually reverse Judge Lambert's decision. And uh, so, uh, for more, uh, so for more on not specifically this case, but um, but uh, my book, Stem Cell Century, uh, covers a whole range of legal and policy issues related to stem cell research, uh, from patent issues to informed consent to the question of whether uh, people should be able to buy or sell tissues, uh, and to the uh, ethical uh, issues about using embryos. Thanks. And that's at, that's at stemcellcentury.com. You can find out more about that book. And uh, Professor Kendergren, how about you? Well, it, it seems to me that uh, Russell's absolutely correct in his uh, uh, predictions. At least it seems to me to be a pretty solid educated guest. Uh, I do think that the issue is much broader than that which is presented in this case. Uh, but any time you get into congressional enactments, you get into issues that involve, we haven't even mentioned cloning as something that's out there and seems to be frightening a lot of people. When you get into the economics of this, get into religious issues, uh, there are a lot of issues and problems that are not purely legal in nature. Uh, I think from a legal point of view, ultimately this challenge to federal funding is going to fail. Uh, but uh, it's certainly something that is uh, it riles up a lot of people, and that makes it much more difficult to uh, to deal with it in any kind of rational, thoughtful way. Uh, uh, since we're talking about books, I guess the one I'd recommend of my own is the one I've written with Maureen McBride, and it's published by the American Bar Association. It's actually going into a second edition shortly. Uh, and uh, it is it is called assisted reproductive technology. Uh, we deal with it primarily in a legal sense, but uh, there are some of these uh, other issues or aspects of the debate which we also try to work in because I think they are part of the picture. That's available from the American Bar Association. Well, thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate your thoughts. And uh, Craig, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that they can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And I'd like to add my thanks to our guests for being with us today. And for our listeners, remember that you can find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes as well. And you also, a reminder, you can get CLE credit for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer by clicking, uh, going to Legal Talk Network and li- clicking on the West Legal Ed Center icon there. Um, and uh, listen and get CLE credit. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. So when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.